coming to you live from the basement of an abandoned house in the middle of a field. It's the Derek Izzy Show. Making history his story, Derek Izzy. You're listening to The Derek Izzy Show. Moses, thank you for that wonderful introduction. And listeners, welcome to the 41st podcast. With today's show, we will take you back in time to a tragedy in United States history. We will also explore some of the conspiracy theories surrounding this tragedy and our society's need for answers and an inherent need to create conspiracies, which I believe is evident in our society's quest for answers, whether we have factual answers or whether we make things up just so we feel better about having a sense of where our society is going. Today's show is being brought to you by IzzyRacketball.com. If you're a racquetball player, you need to head to IzzyRacketball.com and check out all the racquetball equipment for sale. If you're not a racquetball player and you just need some court shoes, whether that's tennis, volleyball, any type of court sport, You can get yourself a pair of Prince or Ectalon shoes from IzzyRacketball.com. You'll get yourself a good deal and excellent pair of shoes. If you just want to wear them for casual wear, there's at least a dozen different types of shoes to choose from, all different sizes. Check them out, IzzyRacketball.com. Now, before I get into today's podcast, I know I don't like to air a lot of my personal grievances on this show, but I have made a decision to sever ties with a former sponsor of the show, and that's BetDSI. They're a sports betting website, and I've actually done quite well financially betting on their website. And having them as a sponsor of the show was a good idea at the beginning. They were a company that I trusted, that I used myself. And we just had a little bit of a falling out. I recommended a lot of customers head their way. They gave my customers a good deal. And what ended up happening is they are a company that's based in another country. They're they're based in England. So whenever charges appear on your credit card statement or on your bank statement, it's often a foreign entity. It doesn't say the charge was placed by BetDSI. And what I found was that they had used several different names to make charges. Now, these were all charges that I authorized. However, I'd never seen any of these names before, so I started calling my bank and, and asking, what's up with this charge? I, I don't recognize this company. And what happened was last week, I had a, I made a $100 deposit. A business name showed up on my credit card account 
taking $100 out of my account, and I didn't recognize it. I'd never seen this business name before. So I called the credit card company, and I disputed the charge. I got an email from BetDSI saying, hey, your charge is being disputed. Please call your bank and correct this. So immediately I called the bank, and I explained to them, I, I recognize the charge now, so go ahead and cancel the dispute. Then I got back with BetDSI, and I informed them that the dispute was canceled, so go ahead and process the transaction as normal. They did process the transaction, and then I went to make a second deposit, and the website would not allow me to do this using my credit card. And I was trying to figure it out. Finally, I, I talked to somebody from their support team, and his name was Chuck, and Chuck informed me that my account has been flagged because I disputed a charge. And I explained to him, well, I, I initially disputed it, but then I called and had it corrected, and the charge went through. And he said, well, that that's true in this case, but once you dispute the charge, then your account gets flagged, and you can no longer use a, a card to make a deposit. You can only make deposits by wire transfer or you can write a check. And I, I said, well, okay, you, you're aware that, that you're a sponsor of my show and that we've had a, a business relationship outside of just sports betting. And he said, I'm sorry, sir, this is a management decision. And I said, well, can I get the name of a manager or somebody to talk to to get this reversed? Chuck informed me, no, that's not our policy. And so then my, my last recourse was, okay, I, I understand that. Um, now, I, I will be in the process of canceling my account and severing our business relationship. And I'm going to inform my podcast audience of what has happened during this conversation. And at that point, he just cut off the chat window, completely shut down the, the conversation and ended it. So based on that interaction, now I realize that big companies, you know, they're going to have thousands of employees. And sometimes you'll find an employee who's having a bad day. And that one person's attitude should not reflect the entire company. However, Chuck didn't give me a bad attitude. He just explained the company's policy, and that's their policy, is that regardless of who you are, they do follow the same rules, and I decided that I didn't like that rule. I felt that because of my business relationship with them, they should overlook it in my case. They thought I was asking for too much, and I thought I was being perfectly reasonable. What do you think? Shoot me an email, Derek at DerekIzzy.com, and let me know. I like to hear from my listeners, and I know that a lot of you have used BetDSI, and I would encourage you to end your relationship with them as well. Now, it's your life. You, don't, you can do what you want to, but I am in the process of developing another business relationship with a sports betting website, and that will be out shortly. So you can look forward to that. Probably, probably completed by the time our June podcast comes out, you will get to see that new relationship. And now, the restaurant review for today's podcast. In Arlington, Texas, there is a restaurant called Chop House Burgers. 
when I moved to Texas, I lived there for a short period of time. This was one of my favorite restaurants to visit. It's been featured on television. What makes them unique? Chef Kenny Mills, a former steakhouse chef, has done some amazing things with their food products, especially the burgers. One of the things they are known for with their burgers is mixing different ingredients right in to the ground beef. One of the unique things that I experienced was that they were willing to customize anything the way that I wanted it. They have a menu of some amazing different burgers and dishes, and you can also customize whatever you want. They will make it custom for you. For example, the first time I was there, what did I try? The Chop House Burger, of course. Chop House Burger is char-grilled ground beef and slow-roasted brisket. Now, they mix that up all into one patty, You've got your house-made steak sauce that they put on top of it, applewood bacon, smoked cheddar cheese, and then the bun is actually buttered and toasted. They've received many awards for having the best burger, but honestly, I was there usually once a week, and I would just go through every single item on their menu. For example, the first time I was there, I had the Chop House burger. The second time, the Black and Blue burger. The third time, the Texican. Texican is uh, ground beef mixed with tomato, jalapeno, onion, cilantro. Then they throw that onto the grill, top it with pepper jack cheese and sliced avocado. Does that make your mouth water right there? They've got a lot of crazy different burgers. You got your buffalo chicken burger, your 10 pepper burger. And if burgers weren't enough, I would suggest getting the homemade onion rings. They do make them in-house using their own type of breading. Delicious. And then for dessert, they've got several homemade pies. And you can't go wrong with their homemade pies. They're all made from scratch, baked fresh every day, using fresh ingredients. And I'm about ready to go to lunch right now. This is, this is too much for me. Hey, Moses, can you take over? What? No, no, I'm... I'm going to go to lunch first. Forget you. Come on, Moses. This is my this is my show. I'm going to go get a burger. Well, you know they don't just have burgers. Yeah. Yeah, I know they this, do Moses. They have other things too. You can get salads. Mhm. Those are all and, good. Uh, mozzarella sticks. Yeah, I had those. Those are amazing. They do chicken salad. Oh, their chili is amazing. You can get fajita rolls. They have a lot of good food there. You should really try it out. There you go, direct from the mouth of Moses. He recommends you try it out as well. Chop House Burgers, located at 2230 West Park Row Drive in Arlington, Texas. So if you're ever in Texas, check them out. And now... 15 minutes into the podcast, we are on to our first topic. The topic of today's podcast. Conspiracy theories. There have been many, many government conspiracies throughout the U.S. history. Some of them you may have heard of, some of them maybe you haven't. I think everyone's heard of the conspiracy theory about there being more than one shooter. 
in the John F. Kennedy assassination. The conspiracy theory about the incident in the Gulf of Tonkin, which led to the U.S. getting involved in the Vietnam War, that that incident never actually happened. Americans being vaccinated for polio and being contaminated with a cancer-causing virus. This was a conspiracy from the late 1950s. Then on into the 60s, there was a conspiracy theory that military leaders had actually planned attacks against the U.S. in order to drum up support for a war against Cuba. The U.S. government selling weapons to Iran back in the 1980s. Huge government conspiracy. In 1990, there was a conspiracy that a public relations firm, they organized congressional testimony in order to get the U.S. involved in the Persian Gulf War. One thing that all these conspiracy theories have in common, they're all part of U.S. history, and they're all part of our inherent need to understand things. In order to explain the conspiracy theory of today's podcast, I'll give you a little bit of a background. Back in the 1930s, 1940s, the strongest enemies of the United States were overseas. Japan, Germany, they were growing in power. Now the Japanese had an objective to attack the U.S. At the time, they were trying to grow their area in the East Indies and across the Pacific to enable them to take over Southeast Asia. Now you're thinking, how would attacking the U.S. help that? Well, at the time, it wasn't actually a state, but what became the state of Hawaii was a Pacific stronghold. The Japanese theory was, by attacking there, their hope was that the attack would destroy American morale and give Japan the upper hand in negotiations with the U.S., and the U.S. would back down in the hope of having peace with Japan. And then Japan would have a new established stronghold in Hawaii. In order to get this ball rolling, there were some key players in this plan. They sent spies to the U.S. base in Hawaii. Those spies returned information about the number of carriers, number of planes, when the U.S. did military drills, when the carriers were in port, where the carriers went when they left, how long they were at sea, and when they would return. One of these spies was quoted as having a favorite spot, a local tea house equipped with a balcony telescope so he could watch the fleet as they did their drills and exercises. He was quoted as saying, On many nights, I would wind up there. I always asked for the room with a view of Pearl Harbor. At nights, with the lights blazing, it was a magnificent sight. At first light, when the sorties usually began, I could count the ships, identify them, and see how they were deployed. By doing this, he was able to recognize a pattern and predict accurately where the fleet would go and when they would conduct their operations. At the time, negotiations with Japan were very rough. The Japanese were very stubborn, and the Americans were very stubborn. 
the Japanese were becoming more and more aggressive, trying to take over more territory in Southeast Asia. And the U.S. really didn't seem to want to get involved. The U.S. having a fleet in Pearl Harbor, an area that Japan wanted, this area being out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, left the area fairly vulnerable to attack. As negotiations seemed to be failing between the U.S. and Japan, the odds of an attack coming seemed increased. The most likely form of attack that the U.S. expected from Japan was an attack of submarines. Submarines in the area would have easy access to our fleet at Pearl Harbor, and airstrikes seemed a lot less likely, simply because of the distance having to travel and just the sheer number of carriers that we had that would be ready for an attack through the air. So most of the focus was on that submarine attack. By 1940, our government had decided to freeze the Japanese assets within the United States. We stopped all exports of oil, iron, steel, and gasoline to Japan. Now, Japan doesn't have any of these raw materials, so they rely on everyone else to supply them. They started looking to the Philippines and Southeast Asia to find raw materials so they could continue to fund their military. The information being passed down from the government to the U.S. public was that negotiations were not going well, but at the time, diplomacy was the best answer. The United States did not seem to want to go to war. And at 7.02 a.m., December 7, 1941, Army Privates Joe Lockhart and George Elliott picked up a huge blip on their radar screen near Kahuku Point on the northern tip of Oahu. Shocked by how big this blip was on their screen, George Elliott called the information center east of Pearl Harbor, let them know something was coming. A lieutenant who had only been on the job less than a week took the call. Now the inside knowledge that he had was that a flight of B-17s was flying in from the United States, and that's probably what it was. He told the private not to worry about it. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation, and at the solicitation of Japan, was still in conversation with its government and its emperor, looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. In addition, American ships have been reported torpedoed on the high seas between San Francisco and Honolulu. As Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, 
I have directed that all measures be taken for our defense, but always will our whole nation remember the character of the onslaught against us. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. I believe that I interpret the will of the Congress and of the people when I assert that we will not only defend ourselves to the uttermost, but will make it very certain that this form of treachery shall never again endanger us. Hostilities exist. There is no blinking at the fact that our people, our territory, and our interests are in grave danger. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7th, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. The attack had begun. A fleet of 25 Japanese submarines was on the way. In fact, four hours before the big attack, one of the midget submarines was sighted less than two miles outside of Pearl Harbor. And that was the attack that the armed forces had really expected. They expected a submarine attack. What they did not expect was the first wave. What was this first wave? 49 high-level bombers, 51 dive bombers, 43 fighter planes, 40 torpedo planes, a total of 183 planes in this first wave of attack, machine guns and bombs going off everywhere. They all flew in at once. It was an overwhelming attack on U.S. forces that were not prepared for an airstrike. Roughly an hour and a half later, a second wave of attack happened. 54 high-level bombers, 80 dive bombers, 36 fighter planes. By then, the U.S. had at least assembled some sort of a defense, and that defense was able to mount some kind of offensive strike against the Japanese. And at the very least, this prevented the third wave from happening, because there was a third wave attack planned by the Japanese. This kind of blitz attack left the army scrambling. They weren't prepared. They didn't have their anti-aircraft guns ready. They didn't have their troops ready. They were completely caught off guard. Ninety minutes after the attack began, the attack was over.
Over 2,000 sailors were killed. Over 700 wounded. In total, just over 2,400 Americans died and over 1,100 were wounded. That includes the civilians. 18 ships were sunk or run aground. Five of them were battleships. As you know one thing about the American people, even when morale is not very high in our country, when we get attacked, we do stick together as one big family. That was something the Japanese had not counted on. The attack on Pearl Harbor was the rallying cry that the United States needed to get involved in World War II and launch a massive attack with the Allied forces that would end up defeating the Germans and the Japanese. Now, what you may not know is the conspiracy theory behind Pearl Harbor. Because there are a lot of people who maintain that the U.S. knew about this attack long before the attack happened, and that the president was instrumental. FDR was the president at the time. And he was instrumental in allowing the attack to happen in order to provoke the U.S. That is one of the conspiracy theories, that he knew this attack was going to happen, and he allowed it to happen specifically so we would go to war. The theory is that he did not feel the American public would support a declaration of war. But if the attack were allowed to happen, he knew that the opinion of the country would change and we would gladly go to war. Some of these conspiracy theories came out long before the war. In his 1925 book, Winged Defense, Billy Mitchell, one of the founding, founding fathers of the Air Force, he detailed how Japan might attack Hawaii. It was an air attack. Sixty Japanese pursuit planes destroying hangars and planes on the ground, followed by 100 bombers striking Pearl Harbor's naval base. Though he did actually predict the attack on Pearl Harbor, he did get a lot of details wrong. But this was in 1925, so there wouldn't be much credence in a theory in 1925 of something that happened in 1941. There have been 10 official U.S. inquiries into whether or not the U.S. had advanced knowledge of an attack on Pearl Harbor. Most of them happened between 1941 and 1996. The 10th one happened in 1995. None of these inquiries actually produced any real evidence that the United States knew about the attack in advance. There was a theory that the codes that the Japanese used on their radios had already been broken, and the U.S. was able to translate everything they were broadcasting over their radios. It's possible that this could have been true. Now, when Japan launched their attack on Pearl Harbor, they did silence their radios. That was one of the keys to their attack, was radio silence. There's the McCollum Memo. That was a memo that was submitted to a couple Navy captains, which details some possible actions that could provoke Japan into attacking the United States. This was a memo that remained classified until 1994. 
It contained the memorable line, If by these means Japan could be led to commit an overt act of war, so much the better. That was a memo that Arthur McCollum, lieutenant commander of the Office of Naval Intelligence, submitted to his Navy captains. There's a conspiracy involving Japanese intelligence that there were at least two agents living in Hawaii committing espionage against the United States, passing on information to Japan. There was a conspiracy about Allied intelligence that throughout 1941, previous to the attack, the U.S., Britain, and the Netherlands had all collected considerable evidence suggesting that Japan was planning a new military adventure. Then there was a conspiracy called the Winds Code. This was announcing the direction of new hostilities that would come over the radio, sounding exactly like a weather forecast. This was something that was only supposed to be implemented if communications between Japan and Washington were cut. Japan had sent diplomats to the United States to negotiate with the federal government. Some of the information they had was to warn the U.S. government of an attack, basically a declaration of war being given to the United States government. That was supposed to happen right before the attack struck. The plan was to have the ambassadors come in, warn the U.S. government, now we are at war, and then within minutes of that warning, the bombs were supposed to drop. However, the timeline did not work out, and the bombs were dropped before war was declared. There are many unreleased classified informational documents Some of these documents pertain to the attack directly. Some have been lost, some have been mutilated, so we may never know the truth behind what these classified documents actually said. There's also a theory that the Hawaiian commanders failed to detect the approaching Japanese carriers and that they were set up like that on purpose, that they had requested additional support and they were denied by Washington. There is a document sent to the State Department by the American ambassador to Japan, Joseph Grew, on January 27, 1941, long before the attack happened, where he says, A member of my staff was told that he heard from many sources, including a Japanese source, that the Japanese military forces planned, in the event of trouble with the United States, to attempt a surprise mass attack on Pearl Harbor using all their military facilities. He added that although the project seemed fantastic, the fact that he had heard it from numerous sources prompted him to pass on the information. And I think that kind of gives you an impression of the mindset at the time that nobody thought this would happen. You know, a submarine attack seemed kind of likely, but it did not make any sense for Japan to attack the U.S., And based on that information, you can see how we would have had to have positioned our forces and set up for what we deemed the most likely attacks from other countries. It seemed very, very unlikely that Japan would attack us because it didn't make any sense for them. Looking through our eyes, we would see them as provoking the giant. And it didn't make any logical sense why they would want to do that 
So therefore, we're going to focus our time and effort in other areas. One theory that does seem kind of clear that we overlooked was that Japan had a reputation for making surprise attacks after diplomatic relations started to fail. They had done this on several occasions throughout history, so this kind of seemed like a likely occurrence. However, narrowing it down to just one specific area was not something that realistically could have been done. One of the last pieces of information I have here was a quote from FDR when he was talking to Joseph Stalin, November 30th, 1943, two years after Pearl Harbor. He says, If the Japanese had not attacked the U.S., I doubt very much that it would have been possible to send any American forces to Europe. If you compare that statement with what FDR said at the Atlantic Conference a few months before Pearl Harbor happened, he says, Everything was to be done to force an incident to justify hostilities. I could see how that could be construed as a conspiracy with FDR, but the last piece of evidence I have for you is a newspaper headline. This newspaper headline was something that I observed myself at the Military Heritage Museum in Punta Gorda, Florida. The story behind it is that a soldier had received the newspaper and stocked it away, and at some point in time, it was in the basement of a house, and after that soldier had passed away, the house was being sold, and as they went through the soldier's belongings, they found this newspaper. It's the November 30th, 1941 edition of the Hilo Tribune Herald. The headline reads, Japan may strike over weekend. That definitely does look like a prediction of the Pearl Harbor attack. Now, there's other people that know about this newspaper also, and they've attempted to destroy its credibility by looking at the other articles that appear on that front page by saying that those articles are not valid, and that's how you can tell that the paper is fake. For example, one article says Reds retake Rostov after classic move. And the person's theory was that the Reds being the the Russians, they did not retake Rostov from the Germans until 1943. However, Rostov was taken by the Germans in 1941, but also in 1941, the Russians being our allies at the time, they launched an attack to retake Rostov in 1941. It was actually on November 27, 1941. This paper was published November 30, 1941, which I believe is enough time for our allies to pass information about the attack to our sources. However, we wouldn't have known that the maneuver had been successful until later. But since this is just a picture of the front page, you can't read the text of the article, so you don't actually know what the article contained. So I'm not sure. Based on all the research I did, it's possible that people in power knew the the attack was going to happen, but 
based on my research, my honest opinion is that I don't think it was likely. There are a lot of people that wanted to go to war. There are a lot of people that didn't want to go to war. And in hindsight, it's a lot easier to see things that may not have been evident at the time. So many different people in different roles of government that knew things but didn't communicate it to each other. So whether or not FDR heard information from a lieutenant in Hawaii, we have no way of actually knowing what information actually made it to which person and what information was stopped from going up the chain and why it was stopped. Whether that was somebody within the military who didn't want that information disseminated or whether somebody just determined that that piece of information was not valuable and not likely to bring about anything good from it. So there have been many, many conspiracies on this topic, and I encourage you to do your own research. Find your own opinion. You're welcome to use the information that I found during my search, or you can just think what I think. And what I think is, this has been The Derek Izzy Show. Good day.